I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Greg Renfrew is a brilliant friend who's the founder of Beauty Counter, a pioneer in the clean beauty space. I loved learning more about Greg's journey as a serial entrepreneur and an activist for change in the beauty world. I'm sorry I'm not in Brentwood with you, but happy to hear your voice in Charlotte. Happy. Well, I, you know, I feel like I'm with you all the time because I'm always in your shop in Brentwood. So don't worry, we're, we're together more than you realize. <laughs> Will you tell the listeners where you're from, Greg? I am from originally from New York City, but I now reside in the Pacific Palisades in California. And what was it like growing up in Manhattan? You know, well, I started in Manhattan for my earliest days. I lived in New York when I was a little girl, and then we moved out to the Bedford, Katona, Wakabuk area, which is Westchester County. And, but my parents got divorced when I was seven. So I actually did the opposite of what most kids did. I spent my weekends in the city and then my weekdays in the country. And, um, you know, it was a great place to grow up. I loved being in and out of New York City and all that, it, you know, that came with it. And I also had the ability to grow up on a dirt road and ride my bike when I was at home with my mom. And I think fashion is obviously such a living, breathing thing in in New York City. Do you recall noticing fashion or style as a child? Because I know you love it as an adult. I do love it as an adult. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that growing up, just being in in and out of New York, you always saw people that were really, you know, dressed up, dressed to the nines, especially back in, you know, the 70s and 80s where people really were more formally dressed oftentimes. And my father always went to, you know, he frequented this store called Paul Stewart. And I remember going to Paul Stewart as as a young girl with him and he would get these beautiful shirts and these beautiful, you know, jackets and he always was careful in his selection of ties. And so I think I grew up with a, with parents who, you know, cared about timeless classic pieces and cared about fashion. And I certainly, you know, as a kid, you know, saw millions of people with all different, you know, expressions of themselves through, through clothing, et cetera. And it was, it was fun to watch. Well, and I think you have such incredible style, but I, I also think that your strength and your business acumen are probably the most stylish parts about you. Did that start at home? Um, What what were your messages about, I guess, leadership and business uh, growing up? You know, know, Laura, I I had the good fortune of having two parents who believed in my capabilities and always from the earliest days told me that I could be anything that I wanted to be as long as I was willing to work really, really hard. Uh, you know, they always said, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be the president of the United States someday. You just have to be willing to work very hard. And so they instilled in me that confidence. That doesn't mean that I don't have moments of, of self-doubt because I do, but they always were, were cheering me on from the sidelines telling me to go for it. I, I also think that my parents believed in hard work. And so 
as a child, I was always working the dinner parties, doing the dishes, you know, serving, <laughs> babysitting, lots of lots of jobs that often aren't afforded to kids anymore. But I was I always had a side gig. I mean, just from 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 I don't know from when I was like eleven or twelve, I was always doing something, and I really enjoyed making my own money and having my own pocket money that I could spend as I as I saw fit. So, you know, it's it's been part of my my upbringing always. Did you have siblings? I do. I have one younger brother who is two years younger, lives in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, nice. I was just there last weekend. Oh, you are. That's, that's not a bad place to live. Did you go to, <laughs> yeah, that, my friend did a big trunk show there last weekend. I don't know if you participated in that, but. I did. That was, that, oh, that, that okay. was me. That, yeah. that was I. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> and you also uh, went to an East Coast boarding school like I did. And I think that that also produces some excellent style moments. And I'm dying to see pictures of you at Ms. Porter's. Do you remember what I mean, you wore? <laughs> oh gosh, I wish I didn't. You know, I do remember what I wore. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I grew up in that sort of preppy era of, you know, whale turtlenecks and wide, <laughs> wide, you know, wide whale corduroys and, and things like that. But then I think by my, by the latter part of my high school experience, I was really into limited express oversized sweaters. I was inspired by, you know, Madonna and all of her black bracelets she used to wear. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I think I wore a lot of oversized clothes and it's funny because I look at my daughter who's in boarding school today and I see all these kids wearing these, you know, huge hoodies. And I keep saying, no, (laughs) you know, you don't want to wear that. But, you know, I've realized I was the same. I was the same way when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. I'm still wearing my high school and college boyfriend's clothes that I've nabbed from him and my husband's clothes. (laughs) And my best friend from boarding school, who is a creative director for Matches now, fashion director, she and I both say we're we're just committed to looking like teenage boys or something. Like that's our favorite way to dress. (laughs) (laughs) Going away so young, how did that inform who you are? Because it really changed my life. For sure. You know, I always say that Miss Porter's, now kind of known as Porter's today, really shaped me and, you know, helped me become the woman that I am today. And I think that there was an incredible community of women there and obviously male teachers, but there was the power of the community of women knowing that you had a group of people who were really there to help you become a bold and you know strong ethical young woman i think it shaped me in that way i think you know learning how to balance my checkbook and be financially you know responsible and recognizing you know how to live my life as an independent woman from the age of 14 on was really powerful for me i also think that from a very young age it reminded or it sort of taught me the lesson that women are the backbone of your life and you know my mother used to say that men were the icing on the cake but you had to build your own strong foundation and that women were a very big part of that and that you know men or or relationships romantic relationships you know may come and go but your friendships with women are going to be the things that get you through the good and the bad times and so that was a really important part of my high school experience and I'm still you know all these years later super close with many of the people with whom I went to school and I still keep in touch with my old advisor and certain members of the administration who really you know, helped me step up to be the best version of myself I could be. Yeah. The, the other thing, I, I think I know you pretty well, but I did not know that you went to Groovy UV to the <laughs> University of Vermont, where my boy, my college boyfriend went, and also Irene went. I, oh, I didn't I know loved, she went there. That's yeah, so I know. <laughs> I know. Um, how did you choose UVM? And how, and again, more style, I hate to think. I'm sure there are a lot of... Um, a lot oh, of tie-dyes. Yes. You know, it's so funny because I remember exactly, like, I remember my exact go-to outfit when I was 
in college. I used to wear these little mini skirts because back then, you know, my legs, my legs, I could, I could wear a little <laughs> mini skirts. Now I used to wear clogs, navy blue suede clogs with little yes. socks. And then I would wear all these Indian print t-shirts and yes. uh, t-shirts. And, you know, of course, obviously in the winter it was freezing. You know, I didn't choose the <laughs> University of Vermont. I actually chose the University of Virginia where my father and his family had gone, but I didn't get in. And I, this, my second choice was UVM and I, I just loved it. You know, I, I would admit that I wasn't the best student prior to college <laughs> or after college or during college, but I certainly took advantage of the social experiment and my boyfriend and all the other things that I <laughs> valued uh, greatly. You know, I had a wonderful time. You know, Vermont is beautiful and it's a really progressive city and also it was a very progressive university. I remember people, you know, really focusing on the apartheid, what was going on in South Africa. You know, people were taking stands. Ben and Jerry's was just being, you know, founded back in, the, in that time. So that yeah. it had already been founded, but I mean, it was a, it was a young company and a very act, you know, sort of an activist brand right out of the gate. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was a fun time to be there, lots to do. And, you know, I love my experience at Vermont. And, and interesting that you ended up marrying a South African. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, first first non-American boy I ever kissed was my husband. <laughs> I kind of was I was all American all the way through until the last one. Well, you you waited for a great one. Yes. <laughs> what did you study at UVM? I studied English because I really wanted to have, first of all, I love to read. I'm an avid reader and also because I wanted to have a strong command of the English language. And then I was an art history minor. Oh, nice. So you could do fun things too. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think that English has actually served me well. I often say to people when they don't know what to major in, in, in college, that English really serves you well because communication is the backbone of all things in life and certainly in business. If you're a strong communicator, you'll be much more successful in business. And so I actually think it's a, it's a undervalued academic focus. I completely agree. I concur. <laughs> and I hear there's a great story about a, uh, a graduation gift from your mom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my mother, my mother believes that you, upon graduation, should be on your own. That she felt that she had done her job of, you know, affording me, you know, a high school, you know, debt-free education, all the wonderful things that I was afforded in my in my childhood. And when she, when I graduated, she she gave me a briefcase, a black briefcase, a leather briefcase. Again, again, people, you know, in the in the time those were kind of in vogue, uh, and with my initials <laughs> on it, and then a check for five thousand dollars. And she said, you know, do with this money as you wish, but you are now completely on your own. And it was a really and look, you know, by many standards, five thousand dollars is a lot of money, uh, you know, and it was, but it didn't afford me much more than a couple of you know suits and a first and last month's you know deposit on a, an apartment but <laughs> but that was about it and so you know when I graduated I a lot of my friends were going to travel around the world or to go you know be sort of quote-unquote ski bums in Colorado or Wyoming but for me I went straight to New York City to get a job right after I graduated and and, you know, it was straight to Ann Taylor to buy my first suit. And uh, and off I went to the races with my, my $5,000, which were which which went away very quickly in New York City, let me tell you. <clears throat> I can't believe that even covered your security deposit, actually, now that you it, mentioned it. It barely did. It barely did, which is why I was immediately, in, you know, had credit card debt. So... It, <laughs> And you, and you went straight into advertising, Greg? I did. I went to work for a company called Mark Communications, and mm -hmm. I was an account manager on Ann Taylor and Talbot. Wow. And Talbot. Where you, you just got in your suits? Okay, good. I like I know. it. I know. So <laughs> funny. It's so funny. But it was it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And I did that for about six months until I racked up credit card debt. And 
went to my mother and said, I have an American Express bill that I can't pay. And she said, well, I guess it's time for a new job. I mean, again, she was not <laughs> going to give me any more money. I mean, she had the means with which to do so, but she wasn't going to. And so I, I switched from advertising and went, in, went into sales. At, at Xerox. And at me, Xerox. And what was that like? What was your biggest takeaway? It was an incredible experience for me because it, you know, at the time, and, and maybe still today, it had the best sales training program in the United States. And it was all focused on leadership through quality. And it really trained me on how to be a good salesperson. And I think there are a couple of things that I learned. First and foremost, the best salespeople are the best listeners. You are serving your clients, not selling to them. You are listening to their needs and trying to provide solutions to their needs, not project your needs or your desires and wants on them. And I also think it it really helped me recognize that it, you're going to have the door closed in your face, either literally or physically, either <laughs> physically, you know, or yeah. figuratively, it's going to happen time and time again. And so if you aren't willing to continue to put yourself out there, and if you're not willing to have those doors slammed in your face, you're never going to achieve your true potential. And I, I lived that in my time in New York City, working for Xerox, knocking on doors in the jewelry district, trying to convince you know, that the people in the jewelry district that, that they needed copiers, which they really didn't. Um, so it was a good lesson. I know people know you from Beauty Counter, but I think that your first entrepreneurial journey was a really interesting one with the wedding list. Will you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's funny you say that, Laura, because one of my current investors in Beauty Counter also invested with me in, in at the wedding list. And he said, you know, people think of you as having done this one thing, but you actually already sold a company to Martha Stewart when you were much younger, exactly. and, which is really cool. I mean, the wedding list was an incredible concept that I, that I learned about in London when I was living there with my day job. And I brought this concept of wedding registry back to the United States and incorporated the internet into it. You know, the thought for me was, which seems so crazy because it was a long time ago, is how do you allow people to you know, shop online for wedding presents, because at the end of the day, once someone has chosen that gift on their registry, it becomes a commodity. You know what you want to spend and you just want to do it quickly and efficiently. And at the time, people had to go to the stores to look at the wedding registry. But I thought, why can't they just go online and say, I'm comfortable spending $75? What's in my price range? And click and spend. <laughs> so we built a really interesting multi-channel wedding registry business um, out of the gate with stores and a website. And Ultimately sold it to Martha Stewart in marking her first acquisition, which was wow. which was challenging. Working for Martha was, <laughs> was, was an experience unlike no other. Well, I also, thinking back on it, I mean, I think you it was like one of the first websites. I mean, not, a, it, was, know, not yes. only, it really was. And so how did you, I mean, you must have learned so many things. I learned so many things. Yes, of course I did. I, I mean, I think the things that I learned the most are, first of all, I learned that who you work with in terms of your financial sponsor, your investors, and who you team up with on a day-to-day -day basis matters a lot. Yeah. Because I think that at the end of the day, I was really, you know, focused on trying to get money to build the business and taking money from everyone. I was almost in the same way that I think often young women, when they're dating, they're sort of apologetic about what they stand for. And they're always trying to keep everyone happy. And I think I took in the wrong investors, which was, which was an invaluable lesson, unfortunately, you know, made it, you know, sort of forced me to sell the company earlier. But I think I learned that lesson very early on. I also think, and Laura, you know this, but when you start a business, you know, no matter how old you are, and whether whether you're a woman or a man, whatever, that when you have a good idea, people will surround you and they'll make you feel like you need them in order to be successful. And what I really mm -hmm. now believe is that 
of course you need, it takes a village to be successful in any, in any business, but it also, you have to have the confidence that you can actually go it alone and do it well without others because they try to attach themselves or make you feel insecure about what it is that you're doing. And especially when you're trying something new. And so I always encourage people to dig deep, to find that confidence and to recognize that while others certainly will and can help them, that they don't necessarily need all the people that surround them to be successful, that they can do a lot more of it on their own than they oftentimes realize. Well, and especially, I guess, like you were saying, I mean, you were doing things that hadn't been done before, really. And so I think you naturally you would think, well, I don't know how to build a website. So I guess I need this person to do that. And I haven't been I haven't done any fundraising before. So this person can do that. But I mean, knowing you as well, you're such a powerhouse. You could, I mean, I have confidence that you could figure all of it out on your own, actually. (laughs) Well, I do think the people who are entrepreneurial are resilient and resourceful and curious. And, you know, I think that I don't ever have all the answers. I mean, I don't have the answers today. I mean, every day I'm faced with new challenges, you know, for which I'm, you know, ill-equipped to make the the best recommendations, but I, but I seek counsel from people that I trust. And then I do the best job I can at any given moment in time. And I think that, you know, oftentimes when you start something new or you have a vision for something that, that others can't quite imagine yet, they think that you're crazy and they tell you you're crazy. But I've found that actually, being crazy is, is, is part and parcel to being an entrepreneur and, you know, totally. trying to realize your vision, just saying, look, I understand you think this is a bad idea and I'm going to go for it anyway. If you have confidence, oftentimes you, you can make it happen. Yeah. Sounds crazy, but it just might work. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's true. Uh, also, one of the things I think was really interesting that you said was curiosity, because I, I think that's the key to almost everything. I think it's the key to staying young and to being successful and just to being an open person is being curious. I think people underestimate it. Well, for sure. And I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I was talking about a woman with whom I used to work and she was like, I kept talking about music. She, I was working out with her and she was saying, oh, I don't like this music, you know, all these young people. And I said, you know, you should be paying attention to the music that the young people are listening to today. <laughs> it keeps you, it keeps you fresh. It keeps you culturally relevant. You know, you can seek to learn from people who are far older and far younger than you. I learned from my 12-year-olds, my 14-year-old, my 16-year-old. I learned from all of my associates at Beauty Counter, all of the women and men who build businesses with us, and and many people who are much older than I am. And I think there's a lot of learning, and people that don't have curious minds are not as interesting to me, because I seek to learn as much as I can about as many things as possible. And, you know, there's so much more that I don't know, and I will never know, but but why not, why not seek to learn? Yeah, I totally agree. People ask me a lot if I've had female mentors in the fashion industry, and sadly, there really aren't, there haven't been many. Tell me about fundraising and working with venture capitalists. I mean, was it more intimidating being a woman or were you more focused because you're a woman? I try in earnest to use being a woman to my advantage and to look at it as an asset versus a liability and to try to play to the strengths that I have as a woman versus feeling insecure about the fact that I'm a woman. And I think probably, as I said earlier, the first time I raised capital, I was more, I was nervous and I was less confident and I was seeking, you know, not only was I seeking funding, but I was seeking sort of validation. And and, and now I feel very differently about it. I think that you're always going to be the only woman in the room. I mean, I just ran a process um, to sell the majority stake of Beauty Counter. And it was staggering to me that in the large scale private equity firms that 
it was so rare that women were even at the meetings. I mean, given that I'm running a beauty business and given that this, these were the consumer yeah. teams and given right. that these were all the leading institutions, so often you'd have one very junior associate and then you'd be sitting on the line with a bunch of men. And it's not that men can't contribute greatly to the conversation, but the fact that we as women control all the purchasing in this country and globally exactly. and yet are not having seats at the table. And I, you know, I, I, I ended up partnering with a firm Carlisle group that actually had a man that really believes in women. And I said that unapologetically, if you don't believe in women, if you don't believe in making the world safer and healthier, please don't invest in this company. But I found one where there was seriously, <laughs> there was senior leadership, you know, in uh, from a female standpoint within Carlisle and a team of people that really believed in the power of women. And that was one of the reasons I was really attracted to them. So I think you have to get comfortable knowing that more times than not, the people with whom you're speaking are going to be men. And think about how you you know use you know use your emotional intelligence your charm the, your ability to outwit people oftentimes as a woman to your advantage as opposed to thinking about it as a liability yeah you're such a successful leader and i love that you've always uh openly shared your failures because there's so many of them so much <laughs> we could talk about this for hours you know <clears throat> no, but will, will you talk to me a little bit about that about working for martha and then about working for Susie hilfiger at best and company I think in terms of Martha, you know, I would say that what was a failure was that I took in the wrong venture capital and it forced me to sell the company prematurely. Working with Martha was really challenging, but I learned a lot from her, both in terms of things that I would do and ways in which I would never lead. And I think that I, I credit her for teaching, you know, was teaching me quite a few things in terms of leadership because, you know, that organization at the time was very focused around her as a central figure. And people were scared to speak their mind or, you know, disagree with her. I, of course, wasn't, which was, was always was always interesting because she'd say, oh, well, you know, who chose that hideous blue color? And I said, you did yesterday. Remember that meeting at three o'clock? Everyone else would, you know, be apologizing. But, you know, I learned a lot from her. I also learned that she had an incredible eye and she was an unbelievable editor. And if she could, she could just tweak something ever so slightly and make it that much bigger, better. So I do think I learned a lot from, from, from that. And, you know, it was, it was a failure before I even entered into Martha Stewart, but it also taught me that I wasn't really good at fawning all over people just because they're in <laughs> positions of power. I'll put it that way. I think with Susie, it was an, an utter failure. I think coming out of Martha Stewart, having built a, a business and having successfully sold it, again, not financially successful for me, but I think it's still you know something that I was proud of at that age to have sold to her. I was pretty cocky. And I think when I went into working with Susie, first of all, I learned two things. When a job seems too good to be true or any situation seems to be too good to be true, it is too it good to be true. So is. I was so enamored, but, you know, the fact that Tommy Hilfiger called me and that there was this great opportunity to work with Susie. It was an incredible children's brand. But what I found was my arrogance got in the way of me working side by side with her. You know, Susie is a creative and she's she's crazy in a lot of ways, in good ways and in bad. But instead of, you know, learning how to work with a really truly creative person and and create you know environments in which she felt safe and provide construct constructive criticism in the right moments in time i i think i just tried to kind of steamroll her and make her look not intentionally make her look stupid but i would just embarrass her publicly because i would just kind of go up against her and i really regret that greatly and so i didn't handle it well uh, i was young and i was stupid and i got fired by messenger in front of my entire team and oh even God. though i had performed per particularly you know pretty well in terms of turning the company around I didn't make her feel, you know, empowered to do what she's really, truly talented at, which is focusing on the creative side of the business. And so I, you know, no regrets, you know, it was a great learning, but it was, a, it was a huge failure. But, you know, from that, I, 
I, I became a better person, you know, because you grow yeah. up in moments like that. How did you so quickly turn that into that experience into resilience? Because I mean, how much reflection did it take? Was it years before you realized that that's what went down or were you mad for years or like how, how long did it take? I think that I was angry probably for about a year um, in some ways, but I was also, I was angry with her and I was, but I was angry with myself. I knew that I didn't handle it particularly well. Look, I don't think at the end of the day it would have ever worked no matter what. I don't think that the, the chemistry was there. I think that, well, you know, I mean, thank our, God it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank right? God it didn't, you know, and, but you know, if I saw her today, I would give her a big hug and I would take responsibility for the part that I played in it. And I don't think that I, I certainly harbor no ill will. And I know she doesn't either. And I think that, I learned a lot from her and she exposed me to so many wonderful things. And I think that, you know, when you speak to resilience, Laura, I think it's, you know, this better than anyone. I mean, you've just gone through like the, the year from hell as someone who works in fashion and retail when no one was buying anything. You don't have any choice but to put one foot in front of the other, to get out of bed the next day, to face your challenges and just keep moving through them. There, failure is not an option. You just need to keep going. And even though you may need to, you know, have, you know, have too many cocktails or cry shamelessly on your best friend's shoulder, you get up the next morning and you face the day. And that's what I did yeah. the very next day. I just got up and I faced the day. I took responsibility for my actions and I moved forward. I also think being a mother has a little bit to do with that too. And you're you're kind of listening and learning and reflecting on things and, and watching your children make mistakes. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, I did that. I get that. And speaking of, I think that that, that was, we, we start to talk to me a little bit about Beauty Counter and it, it started when you had some, uh, nat, some uh, quote, natural oatmeal body wash, I think. And I think I used that crappy oatmeal body wash too. You probably did. We all did. <laughs> it was a, it was a household name. Yeah. I know, but it was also the only, na- it was only fake natural thing that was out there. Well, that's the like, thing. You know? It looks like oatmeal. It smelled like oatmeal. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. You know, for me, it all really began. So after I left Best and Company, right, actually while I was at Best and Company, it actually started, my journey actually began while I, right when I started at Best and Company, I watched in 2006 An Inconvenient Truth and I became really impassioned with the environmental health movement. I watched the film at the urging of our mutual friend, Leela Rose, who is a fashion designer who's very focused on on the environment. And she said, look, Greg, you are outspoken, you're well-connected, you know, you need to be a voice for change. And so I, I watched that film and I started to try to incorporate that into Best in Company and trying to teach young mothers, you know, what to wash clothes with. You know, everyone was using the, the brand that everyone has used forever, which I won't name. And I was trying to get them to use, <laughs> you know, things like seven generation free and clear or whatever, and that telling them that they could just wash their babies with water and they didn't need to put all right. this stuff on their babies from the second that they are born. And so that was the beginning of the journey. And then subsequent to that, I was living in New York. I was watching so many of my friends be diagnosed with different types of cancer, both women and men. I was watching friends struggle with fertility issues and or give birth to kids with pretty significant health issues and you know all of this came to pass over a period of time and and really the the the, the last moment was I because I was running Best in Company and was the CEO I brought a, a caregiver into our home who was a wonderful woman Cindy who was diagnosed with non-HPV related cervical cancer at the age of 31 and she died in my arms 10 months later and it was for sure environmentally induced cancer there was no you know genetic history and I was devastated and so for all those reasons knowing what was going on with the environment watching things going on with human health I thought you know there's got to be a better way and I started doing all this research and the thing that I could came to understand is that we were being exposed to toxic chemicals which is 
you know, when I went to the environmental working group and looked at the products I was using at my home and saw this natural oatmeal foaming body wash that was creating an <laughs> eight, eight out of nine and toxicity on the scale. And I'm oh thinking, my Oh my God. God, I've been bathing my two babies at the time in this for the last two years. And I thought I was just, I couldn't believe it. And so that was really the beginning of me trying to change the personal care and beauty industry. And how did you select your founding team members? You know, I knew nothing about beauty. I knew nothing about, um, you know, activism, toxic chemicals, chemistry, makeup. Um, you know, I knew about e-commerce and retail. I knew nothing about direct selling. So I needed a whole team of people that knew a lot more about everything than I did. And I, it was hard to pull the team together because there are people with such disparate backgrounds and they don't all love the same things. They don't all think the same way. And it was really challenging in the beginning and really culturally challenging. But we put together a team. You know, I just sort of, as I said earlier, being resourceful, I started calling. I was like, oh, I have a friend that worked at L'Oreal and hair. Let me ask her about someone else. You know, one person would lead me to the next. Oh, the environmental working group. Can you find me the, the chemist that works on, you know, on beauty products? And so I just started calling people and then finally, you know, put together a team of people that obviously helped us build what has been, you know, a, a pretty exciting company. Very exciting and successful from the get-go? Define success. You know, the, the, te <laughs> the, the team financially, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. D depends on how you define success. We're still in business, I guess. We're still in business, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, we're still standing. I think that, you know, we've had good moments and bad, as all companies have had. We've had huge failures and massive wins. I mean, I think that... You know, last week's announcement of our selling the majority share to Carlisle was certainly a huge. massive win. And a year yeah. plus ago, being asked to testify in front of Congress was a huge win. But believe me, there have been a million failures along the way and lots <laughs> of tears and hard work. But I've learned that there is no day where everything's going well or everything's going wrong and you just have to stay the course. <laughs> One of the things I do think, like you mentioned, that's most remarkable and unusual about your journey in Beauty Counter is your continued fight for more regulations within the industry, because I think it's usually the opposite, truly. Tell me why the beauty industry is so unregulated. It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I think at the end of the day, our legislation dates back to 1938. It's part of the Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act. And there was a brief moment in time where that that legislation was health protective. But since World War II, we've introduced, you know, over 85,000 chemicals into commerce and less than 10% of them have been tested for safety and human health. When you look at the beauty industry, I think one of the challenges is that many of those formulations date back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s when people unknowingly put chemicals of concern into the formulations to drive performance. Fast forward many decades, you have shareholder demands, a ruthless capital market. You have customers who have believed in these brands, have believed in these formulations, expect a certain texture, scent, color, etc. And so for them to you know, undo all that and still deliver the same performance is incredibly challenging. So it's not necessarily that they don't want to do better, although some don't really care because it's all about profits, but others are just stuck in this antiquated supply chain and don't know how to even deal with the PR nightmare of saying, actually, the product that we've been selling for all these years can contribute <laughs> to some pretty significant health issues. So I feel like it's a bit of a conundrum for the incumbents who 
are trying to pivot. But, you know, I always say this, and I don't mean to speak disparagingly about Coca-Cola, but it's like Coke's trying to say we're going to make healthy Coke, but it still needs to look exactly the same and taste the same in your mouth. I mean, it's it's hard, you know? I mean, I mean yeah, at least they took the cocaine out, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, no more numbing agents to create no more tears. I mean, yeah, there are some, there's progress that's been made, but I think that, you know, until the federal government d- demands that companies are actually labeling properly, that they're saying, when they say that they have aloe in the product or that they're all natural, that they actually are, until the FDA is screening ingredients for safety and until the FDA has the ability to recall products when they're known to cause harm to health, like it's going to remain much the same. And I think what has been interesting is that consumers are now demanding of companies that they support, that they do the right thing by the people and by the planet. And so I think that that is shifting things in the industry and forcing people to look at the way in which they're doing business and formulating products. And I, I do see a shift coming, but it, but it won't be universally there until the federal government makes some significant changes in legislation. What would be the biggest reform that you'd like to see in the beauty industry in your lifetime? I would really like the FDA to start defining safety in a more comprehensive way to screen classes of chemicals that are known to be harmful to health, like parabens and phthalates, et cetera, take those known carcinogens, et cetera, out of our products. And I would really like them to have the ability to recall products so that if someone does have a misstep, unlike the food industry where they pull food off the shelves immediately, nothing happens in our industry. And I think that that would be a huge step to protect the health and safety of our citizens. Will you talk to the listeners a little bit about the Never List and how you developed it? Certainly. I mean, I myself did not develop it, but we as a company were the first company to really publicly post this list of ingredients that we choose not to formulate with. And those ingredients are linked to cancer, reproductive toxicity, neurotoxicity, and endocrine disruption. And, you know, they they include things, like I said, like parabens and phthalates and formaldehyde and, you know, things like that, pegs. And we, we, we created that list because we wanted to define clean because there was no definition of clean. And that for us is now... The Neverless is just the beginning of, of clean for us. And we have a much more comprehensive approach to it today. But it was also to serve, you know, everyone to say, here are a list of ingredients you just don't want in your products, no matter which brand you're shopping. So download this and take this out in the world with you as you shop the market. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really frustrating is oftentimes companies in the government expect consumers to do the homework, but they don't have the time, the desire, and they, they have no idea how to, I mean, even today after all these years. Yeah. And, and by the way, after 10 years of doing this, I can still look at the back of a label of something and have no idea what these ingredients are there. And, you know, you know, I mean, right. I, you know, methyl lysothiazolinone. I mean, you know, people are like, you know, unless you have a PhD in chemistry, it's pretty hard to decipher what's safe and what isn't. And so that's why we published our never list. Sustainability is also a big buzzword in fashion right now, but it's something that you guys have been practicing at Beauty Counter from the beginning. And I think it can be a little intimidating to understand. Can you explain to the listeners what sustainability looks like in terms of your ingredients? Yes. We, when we look at sustainability, and you're right, it's a huge word and it's a big buzzword today. We look at our comprehensive approach to clean, which includes restricting ingredients that we know do or may cause harm to health. It's looking at supply chain transparency. So as an example, where did that ingredient actually come from? Was it pre-preserved you know, with formaldehyde or something to extend its shelf life before it even came into the United States? Are the workers that are you know working in the fields or who are you know going into the mines to get mica are they paid fairly are they are their children being used in this you know are we looking at our impact on the earth in terms of recyclability the non you know non-virgin plastic use of glass etc so we look 
at sustainability from all of the angles, up and down our supply chain, including including our ingredients, you know, looking at, you know, how are we doing the best job we can? And we're not perfect. I mean, it is always progress versus perfection, but how do we help teach people what's actually happening out there in supply chain? How do we create systemic change? How do we bring the consumer along the journey with us? And how do we always endeavor to do better? And I think that you know, I think it gone are the days when you can ignore sustainability and whether that is sustainability as as defined by taking care of the planet or sustainability as being defined, you know, defined by creating systemic change to help workers to be more responsible in the way in which we bring products to market. I think that we all have to start paying attention to this. We, we owe it to future generations to to take you know huge steps in in moving forward. And you're seeing it in your industry I and mean, all this backlash around the cotton coming from certain provinces in China. I mean, I think people are starting yeah. to speak up and I think that younger generations are demanding uh, this of companies and, and we have a lot of work to do, but you know, if we all band together and, and educate one another and openly source information, hopefully we can all do a better job. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what do you hope beauty counters legacy in the industry will be? You know, when I said when I started the company, my goal was to change beauty forever, to change our industry once and for all, to update an integrated industry and create a better, better path forward. That, you know, I, I hope that we go down as the company that really forever disrupted the industry by creating the clean beauty movement and by changing the laws. And I hope that in time we are a company that lasts a length of time that, you know, future generations can say, oh, my grandmother worked for that company or, you know, they were part of the, you know, one of those companies that really changed the world. I mean, I think we set out to change the world, which seems like a really lofty goal, but that's really what we set out to do. And we work hard at it every single day. Well, I'm proud of what you've created and I'm proud to call you my friend. Well, I appreciate that so much. It's been, it's been, it's been a journey and, and thank God I had you to help dress me along the way and, and support me. You know, women supporting women is such a big part of what we do. And I, it's, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed about our friendship is that you support other women. And I think that, you know, we women need to stick together. And it's not that I don't believe in men because there's so many men that are so important to my life in so many ways, including with <laughs> Beauty Counter. But I do think that the the power of the community of women uh, is a force to be reckoned with. And I think that as we continue to share stories and, and support one another, the world will be a better place. More importantly, what did you wear to the prom? <laughs> Well, I never went to the prom. I didn't have to tell girls high school. So, I mean, you know, I don't know. What did I wear to the prom? I do remember that I did have um, my boyfriend dumped me my junior year in college. I was madly in love with him and he dumped me and I was devastated. And I, I remember I like lost all this weight and my mom brought me a pale pink strapless really short adorable dress that I wore and I wore it with a navy blazer over my shoulders which of course you know that I would do and of course like I feel like I still wear that today so I, that was I don't know I don't know who, like what the brand was or whatever but I do know that I do remember wearing a lot of like Nicole Miller dresses when I first graduated oh, yeah. from college uh, but I but I do remember that I had a pale pink dress and I remember wearing it on to a wedding and you know one of the things I've been trying to talk a little bit about too just with vis-a-vis -vis clothes and is buy really good quality clothes and I think with 
with with things like Afterpay and Klarna and you know these payment providers is spend more on things that are going to last a length of time and you know invest in classic pieces that are your workhorses as opposed to just buying a lot of fast fashion on one-offs. I know it's more affordable, but I think that if people actually looked at the amount of money they spend on fast fashion and how much they throw away versus you know paying in installments for something that they truly love that they can wear 500 times or whatever over the course <laughs> of their life, like that to me is a is a better way of doing that. And I think when I think about your you know your store, you know you buy you know you sell quality pieces that people can have and wear over again, and that's that's something that I think is really amazing. That's the goal. And that's always the best compliment when somebody says, oh my gosh, I have the, this dress I bought from you 25 years ago. And I'm like, oh, that's, that there couldn't be a better compliment. Well, yeah. thank you, Greg, for taking the time. Loved hearing your voice, loved talking with you and um, look forward to seeing you very soon. Thanks so much for having me. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.